Um, I brought a stool because uh, I um, needed to set that book down, uh, as well as a bottle of water. But I was thinking as I was coming up with a stool that like this is the comedi- uh, comedian's kind of stand-up, you know, regular props. And you're hoping I'm going to be as funny as Laura Blackman, but I, <laughs> I promise you I'm not. Okay, everyone need a reset? Okay, here we go. We are continuing in our Gospel Fluency uh, series. This is week three, though this is, no, this is week two, but this is the third part uh, in the series. Uh, Pastor Steve got us started with a primer to get us um, thinking about the idea of being fluent in the Gospel and uh, what that would mean, and then uh, dove in uh, with some content last week. Uh, and this week we're going into uh, what is week two for those of you who are tracking in life groups. Um, but if you've missed any of the messages so far, can I just say, uh, go ahead and find them and uh, take a listen through. It's, uh, it's, it's a valuable thing to get into. Uh, maybe you were away or maybe you were serving in children's ministry or something, but go back and find the podcast and listen to it. You can go to our website, H, uh, Hillcrest, sorry, hillcrestmj.com uh, backslash podcasts. Or you can go to iTunes and subscribe through podcasts there. If you have no idea what I'm talking about and you need tech support, talk to someone who's younger than you because they, they know how it goes. Have you seen this? This is the, the modern world here over here. It's, for those of you who have, need glasses, lemonade, a dollar. Over here, tech support, $10, and this guy's bringing in all the money over here. So um, I ask questions of my wife all the time of how certain things work. She's younger than I am, and so that makes her qualified for lots of those things. Um, so catch up on the podcast. If you've missed any of the teaching, there's lots of good things in there. As we continue, um, we're going to talk this week um, about the worldview, the Christian worldview, the big overarching story. Um, and why we're doing that is because we've been talking about fluency. Fluency is language. It has to do with vocabulary and grammar and other things, all coming together, sentence structure. But you need to understand the context, the cultural context that you find yourselves in. Different words can have different meanings when you travel outside of certain cultures. It depends where you are as to how you use the language. And so we want to back up and talk about culture, talk about worldview. But the easiest way for us to do that is to talk about the story. Every culture is influenced by kind of a large dominant story. Their understanding of the world comes from the narratives that they have in play. For the Christian, the narrative happens in four movements. So we're going to look at those um, today. But um, for those of you who have read Jesus' storybook Bible, you know it's fantastic. And uh, we're going to read a little bit of it today. If you're skeptical about its usefulness for you, maybe you don't have kids or something like that, and you're thinking, well, I don't need that, I don't need a picture book, I have the real Bible, Um, it is great at putting things in perspective. So we're going to read a little bit from that, okay? So, um, I'll give Rio just a second, and and you can look at the pictures, and if you have extremely good vision, you can read along with me, and I'm going to read to us about the beginning, the big story. So don't close your eyes or you'll fall asleep. You can close your eyes if you want to imagine with me. The heavens are singing about how great God is. And the skies are shouting it out. See what God has made. Day after day, night after night, they are speaking to us. That's from Psalms 19, 1 and 2. 
That's paraphrased. God wrote, I love you. He wrote it in the sky and on the earth and under the sea. He wrote his message everywhere because God created everything in his world to reflect him like a mirror, to show us what he is like, to help us know him, to make our hearts sing. The way a kitten chases her tail, the way red poppies grow wild, the way a dolphin swims. And God put it into words, too, and wrote it in a book called the Bible. Now, some people think the Bible is a book of rules telling you what you should and shouldn't do. The Bible certainly does have some rules in it. They show us how life works best. But the Bible isn't mainly about you and what you should be doing. It's about God and what he has done. Other people think the Bible is a book of heroes, showing you people you should copy. The Bible does have some heroes in it, but as you'll soon find out, most of the people in the Bible aren't heroes at all. They make some big mistakes, sometimes on purpose. They get afraid and run away. At times, they are downright mean. No, the Bible isn't a book of rules or a book of heroes. The Bible is most of all a story. It's an adventure story about a young hero who comes, to find a far, comes from a far country to win back his lost treasure. It's a love story about a brave prince who leaves his palace, his throne, everything to rescue the one he loves. It's like the most wonderful of fairy tales that has come true in real life. You see, the best thing about this story is it's true. There are lots of stories in the Bible, but all the stories are telling one big story, the story of how God loves his children and comes to rescue them. It takes the whole world, it takes the whole Bible to tell this story. At the center of the story, there is a baby. Every story in the Bible whispers his name. He is like the missing piece in the puzzle, the piece that makes all the other pieces fit together, and suddenly you can see a beautiful picture. And this is no ordinary baby. This is the child upon whom everything would depend. This is the child who would one day, but wait. Our story starts where all good stories start, right at the very beginning. In the beginning, there was nothing. Nothing to hear, nothing to feel, nothing to see, only emptiness and darkness. Nothing but nothing. But God was there, and God had a wonderful plan. I'll take this emptiness, God said, and I'll fill it up out of the darkness, I'm going to make light, and out of the nothing, I'm going to make everything. Like a mummy bird flutters her wings over her eggs to help her babies hatch, God hovered over the deep, silent darkness. He was making life happen. God spoke. That's all. And whatever he said, it happened. God said, hello, light. And light shone into the darkness. God called the light day and the darkness night. You're good, God said. And they were. Then God said, hello sea, hello sky. And a great space opened up, wide and deep and high. You're good, God said. And they were. Then God said, hello land. And there, splashing up through the oceans, came cliffs, mountains, sandy beaches. You're good, God said. And they were. 
Hello, trees, God said. Hello, grass and flowers and everything everywhere burst into life. He made buds bud, shoots shoot, flowers flower. You're good, God said. And they were. Hello, stars, God said. Hello, sun. Hello, moon. And whizzing into the darkness came fiery globes spinning around and around, whirling orange and purple and golden planets. You're good, God said. And they were. Hello, birds, God said. And with a fluttering and flapping and chirping and singing, birds filled the skies. Hello, fish, God said. And with a darting and dashing and wriggling and splashing, filled the f- fish filled the seas. You're good, God said. And they were. Then God said, hello, animals. And everyone came out to play. The earth was filled with noisy noises, growling and gobbling and snapping and snorting and happy skerfuffling. You're good, God said. And they were. God saw all that he had made, and he loved them. And they were lovely because he loved them. But God saved the best for last. From the beginning, God had a shining dream in his heart. He would make people to share his forever happiness. They would be his children, and the world would be their perfect home. So God breathed life into Adam and Eve When they opened their eyes, the first thing they ever saw was God's face. And when God saw them, he was like a new dad. You look like me, he said. You're the most beautiful thing I've ever made. God loved them with all of his heart. And they were lovely because he loved them. And Adam and Eve joined in the song of the stars and the streams and the wind and the trees, the wonderful song of love to the one who made them. Their hearts were filled with happiness And nothing ever made them sad or lonely or sick or afraid. God looked at everything he had made. Perfect, he said. And it was. But all the stars and the mountains and oceans and galaxies and everything were nothing compared to how much God loved his children. He would move heaven and earth to be near them. Always. Whatever happened, whatever it cost him. He would always love them. And so it was that the wonderful love story began. The creation account is in Genesis chapters 1, 2, and 3. And we're not going to take time to read it this morning for sake of time, but I will assign it for homework. I'm going to highlight a few things that come out of this section of the Bible that have to do with the big parts of the story. First, it starts with God. He's there in the beginning. The Christian worldview is that all of history starts with him. It's all about him and it's heading towards his ends. Every aspect of our existence, the whole universe was shaped by him according to his design and purpose. All of reality is held together by him. Our experience of truth may be relative, but the Christian worldview includes a body of truth that is immovable because it is centered in God himself. Nothing and no one is more awesome and glorious than him. Second, he ordered it all by a word of his power, He spoke, and it was. 
Our words are unlike God's in this way. When I call for my children, come for supper, I'm at best expressing a desire. Since I can call for my children and they don't come. Has anyone experienced this? I have to go and take hold of my children and bring them to the table if I want my word and my power to come together. But not with God. His word and power are the same. He speaks and it is. I'll say this as well. We read in the scripture in John, John's gospel, um, about, uh, and it's revealed in a number of spots, that Jesus is the word. Here he is in the beginning. It's difficult for us to get our heads around, but the scripture is clear. God's word, Jesus, the same power. One step further is the word of God, our Bible, is his word. It's the same power. Jesus lived according to the scriptures, fulfilled countless prophecies from the scripture. He quotes scripture to defeat the enemy. And when he is on the cross in agony, he quotes scripture. He quotes the Psalms from an unknown author, and he calls it the law, even though that wasn't the part of the Bible that was the law, because it's all his word. We just learned in uh, Galatians, actually, very peculiar verse. Um, the gospel was preached to Abraham by the scripture before the scripture or the gospel existed. There's this peculiar verse. And it talks about, again, the reality of God's word even being before the gospel came, the scriptures came together. It's his word of power. We see that here in creation. The other thing that I'll, I'll mention here is that creation is good. The Jesus Storybook Bible, I think, does that well to highlight what it would have been like. From God comes a beautiful creation. Humankind made in his image, male and female, is very good. Even now, though our world suffers because of the consequences of sin, we can still look at it and see how it is marvelous. If this is our starting place, God is the author and designer of all things. It means that we must align ourselves with him and his word. If you live by his design, you will reach and achieve your greatest fulfillment and potential. But if you live by your own word, you will not. See, our words are powerless. True freedom is found within our design. A fish is not ultimately free once it throws itself from the water into the boat or onto the beach. A fish is free in the context it was designed to be. Is he your starting place? Or is this temporary moment, our current cultural context, your starting place? See, our culture always changes its mind. What it believes one moment, it does not believe the next. Have you seen the video about the time-traveling dietitian? Anybody out there? You know what it is? Okay. I'm not going to show it for a number of reasons, but I'll, let me give you the overview. A couple. Sometime in the 1970s. 
is interrupted during breakfast by a time-traveling dietitian. He exclaims, don't eat those eggs. And he warns them about cholesterol and how it can clog your arteries. He disappears for a minute, but then he returns only seconds later. And he says, we were wrong about the eggs. There's two kinds of cholesterol, good cholesterol and bad cholesterol, and there's both in, in, in the eggs. So eat the egg whites, but not, you know, the, the yolk. And then anyways, he disappears and then reappears and comes back and says, actually it turns out that there's no connection between the eggs that you eat and the cholesterol that you've got and what's actually in your bloodstream clogging your arteries. There's, you know, there's no connection there. We were wrong about that too. And then he scolds him and says, but don't eat the steak. You know, a few seconds later, he disappears and he comes back. We were wrong about that too. But the bread, stay away from the bread. Anyways, eventually... He comes back, and you know, as this is going on, this couple, again, is just, it's moments in their life where this guy is appearing and disappearing into their lives, you know, and he's aging. You see his transformation, you know, mustaches were in fashion at some point along the way, and then he comes back. You can see he's aged. He comes back and he says, now we know. You can forget all of the stuff that I told you. It's all genetic. There's nothing that you can do. You should just probably exercise, I guess. And then, you know, this woman who's been trying to cook breakfast says, would you like some eggs? And he says, yeah, I'd love some. <laughs> That's kind of what our culture is like, that it shifts and changes, that it's not ruled by anything. And even if you think about great minds that have existed in other times in history, as great of a mind that they may have had, they were still ruled by the cultural context that they found themselves in. On rare occasions, somebody would push back against the culture, but the culture changed with their new idea or their challenge of the way things were done or just got rid of them. Is your starting place our culture, what we have here, or is your starting place his truth and his word? Do you trust in his word? If a class is sitting together and studying a song or a poem, they can discuss it, they can suggest what they think it might mean, but the moment that the author walks into the room, there can be no disagreement because he can say exactly what he meant by it because he's the author. God is the author of life, and if we want to understand what it means, we have to start with him. What's your starting place? Is it him? Is it his word? Is it his truth? There are many other things that could be said on creation, but this week we are looking at the forest, not the trees, so we better keep moving. We're going to talk about the fall, and I'm going to read again from Jesus Storybook Bible, so again, you can be cozy, grab your teddy bear, and uh, I'm going to read from... Here we go. Uh-oh. Adam and Eve lived happily together in their beautiful home, and everything was perfect for a while, until the day when everything went wrong. God had a horrible enemy. His name was Satan. Sa Satan had once been the most beautiful angel, but he didn't want to be just an angel. He wanted to be God. God had to send him out of heaven. Satan was seething with anger and looked for 
a way to hurt God. He wanted to stop God's plan, stop this love story right there. So he disguised himself as a snake and waited in the garden. Now God had given Adam and Eve only one rule. Don't eat the fruit on that tree, God told them. Because if you do, you'll think you know everything. You'll stop trusting me, and then death and sadness and tears will come. You see, God knew if they ate the fruit, they would think they didn't need him, and they would try to make themselves happy without him. But God knew there was no such thing as happiness without him, and life without him wouldn't be life at all. As soon as the snake saw his chance, he slithered silently up to Eve. Does God really love you? The serpent whispered. If he does, why won't he let you eat the nice, juicy, delicious fruit? Poor you. Perhaps God doesn't want you to be happy. The snake's words hissed into her ears and sunk down deep into her heart like poison. Does God love me? Eve wondered. Suddenly, she didn't know anymore. Just trust me, the serpent whispered. You don't need God. One small taste, that's all, and you'll be happier than you could ever dream. Eve picked the fruit and ate some, and Adam ate some too, and a terrible lie came into the world. It would never leave. It would live on in every human heart, whispering to every one of God's children, God doesn't love me. And it wasn't a dream, it was a nightmare. A dove flew from Adam's hand, a deer darted in a thicket. It was as if they were frightened by something. A chill was in the air. Something strange was happening. They had always been naked, but now they felt naked and wrong, and they didn't want anyone to see them, so they hid. Later that evening, as God was taking his walk, he called to them, children, Usually Adam and Eve loved to hear God's voice and would run to him, but this time they ran away from him and hid in the shadows. Where are you, God called. Hiding, Adam said, we're afraid of you. Did you eat the fruit I told you not to eat? God asked them. Adam said, Eve made me do it. What have you done? God asked. Eve said, the serpent made me do it. And a terrible pain came into God's heart. His children hadn't just broken the one rule. They had broken God's heart. They had broken their wonderful relationship with him. And now he knew everything else would break. God's creation would start to unravel and come undone and go wrong. From now on, everything would die, even though it was all supposed to last forever. You see, sin had come into God's perfect world. And it would never leave. God's children would, always, would be always running from him and hiding in the dark. Their hearts would break now and never work properly again. God couldn't let his children live forever, not in such pain, not without him. There was only one way to protect them. You will have to leave the garden now, God told his children, his eyes filling with tears. This is no longer your true home. It's not the place for you anymore. But before they left the garden, God made clothes for his children to cover them. He gently clothed them, and then he sent them away on a long, long journey, out of the garden, out of their home. Well, in another story, it would all be over, and that would have been the end. But not in this story. 
God loved his children too much to let the story end there. Even though he knew he would suffer, God had a plan, a magnificent dream. One day he would get his children back. One day he would make the world their perfect home again. And one day he would wipe away every tear from their eyes. You see, no matter what, in spite of everything, God would love his children with a never stopping, never giving up, unbreaking, always and forever love. And though they would forget him and run from him, deep in their hearts, God's children would miss him always and long for him, lost children yearning for their home. Before they left the garden, God whispered a promise to Adam and Eve. It will not always be so. I will come to rescue you. And when I do, I'm going to do battle against the snake. I'll get rid of the sin and the dark and the sadness you let in here. I'm coming back for you. And he would. One day, himself, God would come. The second part of the story in these four movements is the fall. Adam and Eve were unbelievers of God's truth. They didn't trust God's word about them or about himself. They believed the lie, the devil, the lie of the devil rather than God's truth. They not only rejected his truth, but they rejected him. When you reject the author of life, all you have is death. So a few points from this section. Again, we're zipping over the forest, not stopping in the trees. Sin is the problem. The Bible consistently and repeatedly goes over what's wrong with the world, what's wrong with each person, and calls it sin. In past series, we've discussed how the Bible often speaks about idolatry. That is to love and serve and worship something other than God. And therefore, anything can be an idol. Idols are often good things that have become more important than God to us. Sin is in our nature. We are sinners, not simply those who make mistakes on occasion. The center of the human heart isn't good. It is dark and sinful. And it's a condition that we ourselves are incapable of getting ourselves out of. We were meant to be the children of God, but instead we are enslaved to worthless idols. We are the monsters. Most people today believe that people are basically good. People explain away the darkness in people's hearts. They talk about how the goodness has been corrupted through circumstances or their upbringing or something. They don't start or talk about sin. When it gets overwhelming, people desperately try to find another way to deal with it or explain it. In fact, most horror stories and myths come from this. Vampires and werewolves and the like, they're born out of this. We don't want to admit that people could be capable of certain kinds of evil. We reserve that level for monsters, but we are the monsters. If you think there is a line of morality that you will never cross in and of yourself, you're wrong. The fullness of evil comes standard to every human born into the world. And what comes to sinners is death. My parents both passed away in their early 60s because of cancer. And as I was mourning their death, I was also mourning my, um, 
mourning my own mortality, that I would likely have cancer, and that already I had passed it on to my children. But cancer is one thing. Sin is much worse. Sin is a death you can live your whole life. Anytime you diagnose the problem with the world with something other than sin, you fail to understand the problem. And no remedy can be found without, with this kind of misdiagnosis. If you don't fully understand what it is to be lost in sin, you will never truly need, know why you need a savior. We don't need to just be nicer. We are dead. We need to be made alive. We need to be born again. But how? Now, the third movement is redemption. Despite how Adam and Eve rejected God, he had a rescue plan. It's a marvel to think that this plan was even in place at the foundations of the world. That even, in, even as Adam and Eve were sent from the garden and the curse of sin was being spoken, there was a promise of redemption. God would put death to death. The Bible follows this promise. It was carried by many people, and great anticipation grew in the hearts of a few. Many continued to abandon God, but some held to the promise. The promise became clearer and more vivid as situation after situation shed new light on the brokenness of humanity and their need for a Savior. God showed each generation a glimpse of what it would be like, how they were lost without him, and how he would rescue them. The promise eventually had a nation, and that nation had a starry night where something amazing happened. Everything was ready. The moment God had been waiting for was here at last. God was coming to help his people, just as he promised in the beginning. But how would he come? What would he be like? What would he do? Mountains would have bowed down, seas would have roared, trees would have clapped their hands, but the earth held its breath. As silent as snow falling, he came in, and when no one was looking in the darkness, he came. There was a young girl who was engaged to a man named Joseph. Joseph was the great, 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 great grandson of King David. One morning, this girl was minding her own business when suddenly a great warrior of light appeared right there in her bedroom. He was Gabriel, and he was an angel, a special messenger from heaven. When she saw the tall, shining man standing there, Mary was frightened. You don't need to be scared, Gabriel said. God is very happy with you. Mary looked around to see if perhaps he was talking to someone else. Mary, Gabriel said, and he laughed with such gladness that Mary's eyes filled with sudden tears. Mary, you're going to have a baby, a little boy. You'll call him Jesus. He is God's own son. He's the one. He's the rescuer. The God who flung planets into space and kept them whirling around and around. The God who made the universe, universe with just a word. The one who could do anything at all was making himself small and coming down as a baby. Wait, God was sending a baby to rescue the world? But it's too wonderful, Mary said, and felt her heart beating hard. How can it be true? Is anything too wonderful 
from God, Gabriel asked. So Mary trusted God more than what her eyes could see. And she believed, I am God's servant. She said, whatever God says, I will do. Sure enough, it was just as the angel had said. Nine months later, Mary was almost ready to have her baby. Now Mary and Joseph had to take a trip to Bethlehem, the town of King David was from. But when they reached the little town, they found every room was full. Every bed was taken. Go away, the innkeepers told them. There isn't any place for you. Where would they stay? Soon Mary's baby would come. They couldn't find anywhere except an old, tumble-down stable. So they stayed where the cows and the donkeys and the horses stayed. And there, in the stable, amongst the chickens and the donkeys and the cows in the quiet of the night, God gave the world his wonderful gift. The baby that would change the world was born. His baby son, Mary and Joseph, wrapped him to keep him warm. They made a soft bed of straw and used the animal's feeding trough as his cradle. And they gazed in wonder at God's great gift, wrapped in swaddling clothes and lying in a manger. Mary and Joseph named him Jesus, Emmanuel, which means God has come to live with us. Because, of course, he had. Now, this is not the only part of redemption. See, Jesus came as a baby, and he grew up, and he lived his life. He brought teaching and truth, compassion, healing, a challenge to many people. But ultimately, he came to go to the cross. As he was on his way to the cross, he stopped in a garden with his friends to pray. The wind was picking up now, blowing clouds across the moon, shrouding the garden in darkness. Stay up with me, Jesus asked his friends. They said, yes, and waited under the olive trees, but they were tired, and soon they fell asleep. Jesus walked ahead alone into the dark. He needed to talk to his heavenly father. He knew it was time for him to die. They had planned it long ago, he and his father. Jesus was going to take the punishment for all the wrong things anybody had ever done or ever would do. Papa, Father, Jesus cried, and he fell to the ground. Is there any other way to get your children back? To heal their hearts, to get rid of the poison? But Jesus knew there was no other way. All the poison of sin was going to have to go into his own heart. God was going to pour into Jesus' heart all the sadness and brokenness in people's hearts. He was going to pour into Jesus' body all the sickness in people's bodies. God was going to have to blame his son for everything that had gone wrong. It would crush Jesus. But there was something else, something even more horrible. When people ran away from God, they lost God. It was what happened when they ran away. Not being close to God was like a punishment. Jesus was going to take that punishment. Jesus knew what that meant. He was going to lose his father. And that Jesus knew would break his heart too. Violent sobs shook Jesus' whole body. Then Jesus was quiet like a lamb. I trust you, Papa, he said. Whatever you say... I will do. 
Suddenly through the trees, a glitter of starlight flashed off steel. Into the quiet garden came whispers, muffled voices, clanking metal, and the sound of boots marching. Jesus stood up. He woke his friends. Now is the time, he said. Everything that was written about me, what God has been telling his people all through the long years, it's all coming true. And into the night, with burning torches and lanterns, with swords and clubs, armor they came, an army of soldiers. Judas, Judas led them straight to Jesus so they could arrest him. Jesus was waiting for them. Peter leapt up, took a sword, and tried to defend Jesus. He sliced off a guard's ear. Jesus immediately touched the guard and healed him. Peter, he said, this is not the way. Peter didn't realize that no army, no matter how big, could ever arrest Jesus, not unless Jesus let them. Then Jesus, who had never done anything except love people, was arrested as if he was a criminal. Jesus' friends were afraid, so they ran away and hid in the dark shadows. The guards marched Jesus off and took him to the leaders. The leaders put Jesus on trial. Are you the son of God, they asked. I am, Jesus said. Who do you think you are to call yourself God? You must die for calling yourself the Son of God. Only the Romans were allowed to kill prisoners, so the leaders made a plan. We'll tell the Romans this man wants to be our king, and then they will crucify him. But it would be all right. It was God's plan. It was for this reason that I was born into the world, Jesus said. So you're a king, are you? The Roman soldiers jeered. Then you'll need a crown and a robe. They gave Jesus a crown made out of thorns and put a purple robe on him and pretended to bow down to him. Your majesty, they said. Then they whipped him and spat on him. They didn't understand that this was the prince of life, the king of heaven and earth who came to rescue them. The soldiers made him a sign, our king, and nailed it to a wooden cross. They walked up a hill outside the city Jesus carried the cross on his back. Jesus had never done anything wrong, but they were going to kill him the way criminals were killed. They nailed Jesus to the cross. Father, forgive them, Jesus gasped. They don't understand what they're doing. You say you've come to rescue us, people shouted, but you can't even rescue yourself. But they were wrong. Jesus could have rescued himself. A legion of angels would have flown to his side if he called. If you were really the son of God, you could just climb down off that cross, they said. And of course they were right. Jesus could have just climbed down. Actually, he could have just said a word and made it all stop. Like when he healed that little girl and stilled the storm and fed 5,000 people. But Jesus stayed. You see, they didn't understand it wasn't the nails that kept Jesus there. It was his love. Papa, Jesus cried, frantically searching the sky. Where are you? Don't leave me. And for the first time and the last, when he spoke, nothing happened. Just a horrible, endless silence. God didn't answer. He turned away from his boy. Tears rolled down Jesus' face, the face of the one who would wipe away every tear from their eyes. Even though it was midday, a dreadful darkness covered the face of the world. The sun could not shine. The earth trembled and quaked. The great mountains shook. Rocks split in two until it seemed that the whole world would break. The creation itself would tear apart. The full force of the storm of God's fierce anger at sin was coming down. 
on his own son instead of his people. It was the only way God could destroy sin and not destroy his children whose hearts were filled with sin. Then Jesus shouted in a loud voice, it is finished. And it was. He had done it. Jesus had rescued the whole world. Father, Jesus cried, I give my life to you. And with a great sigh, he let himself die. Strange clouds and shadows filled the sky, purple, orange, black, like a bruise. Jesus' friends gently carried Jesus. They laid Jesus in a tomb carved out of rock. How could Jesus die? What had gone wrong? What did it mean? They didn't know anything anymore, except they did know that their hearts were breaking. That's the end of Jesus, the leader said. But just to be sure, they sent strong soldiers to guard the tomb. They hauled a huge stone in front of the door of the tomb so that no one could get in or out. Though the power of God was demonstrated in the cross, though the payment made there was all that was needed to cover over all of sin, the cross only scattered his disciples and followers. It wasn't until they had an encounter with the resurrected Jesus that everything changed. From fear and hiding, disciples emerged to take on the world giving their lives entirely for the message of Jesus. They only understood the cross when they encountered the risen Lord. Perhaps you believe that Christian teaching is true. You might live by its principles. But have you had an encounter with him? When seeking his reality, his presence takes hold of you. See, the cross becomes vivid. Its purpose and power become wonderful and beautiful. It becomes the center point for your worship. That in the cross you were laid low because it is your sin that brought about this horror. But you were also lifted to heights you can't imagine. Because the great cost was paid for your salvation. It becomes the sense of your true worth and value. And yet it also becomes the source of your humility an ability to love others. The fourth movement is new creation. And it begins in the, new, in the resurrection. Jesus was raised with a glorified body. He took on our sin on the cross where he paid for it with his blood and destroyed its power. He overcame death and was given new life. And in his glorified sinless body that can no longer be taken down by Satan, sin or death, he has been given all authority in heaven and earth. He is the new and better Adam over a new and better creation. The church is Jesus' bride. All those who believe in Jesus' life, death, and resurrection go from having Adam as their authority and life source to having Jesus as their new Adam. Everything has changed. Our identity and purpose as well as our understanding